You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Now to Genesis 34. If you've read the text recently, you'll know there sometimes seems to be certain texts that ministers may have a bit of trepidation with preaching on, and I can assure you that Genesis 34 is one of those texts. But nonetheless, um, as we come to it, it is Holy Scripture, and so that will give us much to contemplate on why. Why is this included, and what does it have to teach us? Genesis 34, we're continuing the saga of Jacob, and here we come to his daughter, Dinah. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and they were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriage with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will. I will give whatever you say to me, only give the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, why cannot do this to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition, we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do, this, to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of his father's house. So Hamar, the son of Shechem, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the, city, of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the city gate. 
On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came out against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives and all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my house. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And thus ends the reading of God's word with a very almost pregnant pause there at the end. That the way the narrator frames this story, he stops with those words. Jacob doesn't respond to his son's comment. And so looking at this text this evening, uh, it breaks into four scenes. Uh, the opening and the closing scenes both involve uh, narrative. And so we're, we're told what is happening here. And actually each of the sections also end with sons speaking to their father. And the themes are even more paralleled, wherein the first scene, one through four, Dinah is defiled. Uh, in scene four, 25 through 31, it's the city of Shechem that is being defiled, if you will. And in the middle, we have two scenes of dialogue. In both of these, Hamor is trying to broker a marriage alliance with Jacob. In verses 5 through 19, Hamor is doing this with Jacob. In verses 20 through 21, Hamor is doing this with the people of the city of Shechem. And so as we come to this, it is just simply, it is interesting in the sense of if you took this story out, the text would seem to flow right around it. If you took this story out, what would be missing? Would we so long to have this story in our Bible? Why is it included here, and what does it have to teach us? These are the questions we ask of every passage as we get up to preach, and some texts, like I said, are, are sometimes seemingly more obscure than others. But you'll note, if you look at the text, it clearly is supposed to be here, because we left off in chapter 33 with Jacob buying land from Hamor, and from Shechem's, or Hamar from Shechem's father. So he buys a plot of land and he pitches a tent here and he begins to live near this Canaanite city. And it seems that from this point on, things go from seemingly bad to worse with Jacob's relationship with the people. And so in scene one, verses one through four, we have Dinah who was Originally, she was spoken of when we see the birth of the children earlier. There are 12 children born to Jacob and to his four wives at the time, but you get to that number by having 11 sons and one daughter, and Dinah is mentioned earlier. And again, it's, it's unusual for the daughters to be represented or to be mentioned in these unless they will be playing a larger part later. And I think, again, that speaks to the need that if Dinah was mentioned earlier, her story needs to, something needs to come up later in the text. And here we have her, the daughter of Leah, and she is out to see the women of the land. 
So she seems to be walking into the city of Shechem, which is a, a rather great city there. So you can imagine Jacob and his family are living in tents somewhere on the outskirts of the city as a nomadic people, but who are settled for a time being, uh, likely settled next to this large city because it would have economic advantages for Jacob. And Dinah at some point decides to go unaccompanied into this pagan city. And interestingly, you'll remember that this, this episode here of a woman in a pagan city is something that has actually come up three times already in the story of Genesis, twice for Abraham and once for Isaac. In each of these instances, Abraham and Isaac, they're concerned for their wives being taken by foreign kings. And even in the more humorous episode involving Isaac and Rachel, the, the king seems to state that anyone could have come upon her and taken her and, like Shechem, defiled her. That it seems as if the, these pagan cities, that their morality has kind of crumbled to such a state that this is just a normal thing. And actually, as we go through the text, you'll note that Hamor nor Shechem ever seem to admit to or, or even notice what they have done. So even in these interchanges where Hamor and Shechem are trying to negotiate, there's never a mention of what Shechem has done. In verse 2, we see the, the, the crux of it or the, the problem that arises. Shechem takes her, seizes her, lies with her, and humiliates her. The text delicately shows us what has taken place here. In verse 3, though, it seems as if Shechem has a different view of this situation. It speaks of his soul being drawn, that he loved this young woman and spoke tenderly to her. It seems this is the situation that Shechem is looking at and hoping that there might be a marriage here while the verses previous speak of him taking and violating her. There's this cognitive dissonance, it seems to be, between his actions and his feelings. And so he goes to his father, though, and says... Get me this girl as my wife. And looking just at these first verses here, we can see really the fear that Abraham and Isaac had was not completely unfounded. There was this worry that the kings would steal their wives and kill them in return. It, it may be that the way they approached dealing with it was wrong. In fact, not trusting in the Lord. The Lord uh, superintends and comes to the rescue despite their rather bad plans. But here we can see that their fears, however, were completely founded. And as we, we look at this, it does seem to be that Jacob is particularly silent in this text. He seems to show a very callous lack of concern over his daughter. Again, it seems interesting and, and strange that Dinah would just be simply wandering alone in this city. And then later, it is not Jacob who is angry, but the sons who are angry. It is the sons who seek to do something to rectify this situation. And all throughout, Jacob is incredibly silent. And so now we have Shechem who has done this evil deed, speaking to his father to propose that he get Dinah to be his wife. 
And so now we have Hamor who will come to Jacob with his son and propose that there's this marriage alliance that then is not just that he is able to marry Dinah, but rather the entire people would be joined as one people. But he begins, Jacob hears about what has happened, but his sons aren't around. His sons and his servants are taking care of the livestock. And so Jacob here likely just simply feels very outnumbered. And so with the king and his son and likely others standing here, Jacob says he holds his peace until his sons come back. And Hamor finally speaks and asked Jacob that they should make this marriage alignment alliance. And again, you'll note that Jacob holds his peace, but as the sons come in, they are described as indignant and angry and outraged that this thing that happened should not have been done. And so then, as I said, Hamor then negotiates with them. Please give us, please give us your daughter to be his wife. Make marriage with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourself. And so we will be one people. Dwell with us. Trade with us. Get property. And then Shechem makes this outburst. Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say I will give. I'll even give this greater bride price than what normally would be asked for. But again, you'll you'll note here that what's being proposed already is a bad thing. Hamor is proposing intermarriage between the Canaanites and the Israelites. And both Hamor and Shechem seem to have no remorse for what they've done. And even Shechem, using it's a it's a colloquial phrase, let me find favor in your sight seems to completely ring hollow when he's talking to the father of the woman he just violated. Let me find favor in your sight. And the brothers standing there, you can imagine them controlling their anger at this man and his audacity. And so the sons respond. And again, Jacob is standing here in the midst of this negotiation, but it's not Jacob who makes a a proposition, but rather his sons. And one wonders if at this point that what is being offered to Jacob, right, is peace and prosperity and safety. Jacob finds himself in a very difficult position because it's not really until later in the text that we find out that Dinah is being held as a hostage. Dinah is being held by Hamor and Shechem in the palace area. And so you can imagine the situation with this great city, the the king of the city and his son who wants to marry Jacob's daughter and Jacob feeling awfully small and vulnerable out here. And he's being offered peace and prosperity The world is at his doorstep, offering him all of these things should he just give in and intermarry. I think as well, seeing this theme of of intermarriage here already clues in later readers and us as well, knowing that it is always a bad thing when we're talking about intermarriage on a grand scale. There's never a time in Israel's history where this type of intermarriage on a large scale is ever good. The only times we have intermarriage being a good thing is instances of of people who are coming from the outside into the covenant community, going from being not worshipers of Yahweh to being worshipers 
of Yahweh. You'll think of the beautiful story of Ruth. She comes in as a believer, and she is fully brought into the covenant community, much like later when the Gentiles would be brought in. They would not be brought in as second-class citizens, but as full members. The difference here is that what's being proposed is, is not the elevation of the, the Hivites to be worshipers of Yahweh, but the dilution of Israel to be those who worship Yahweh and pagan gods. This whole episode actually will, will be uh, recast later in the book of Numbers. And interestingly enough, in Numbers 31, it's a Levite who is taking the lead in making sure that Israel stays pure and meeting out, meting out vengeance against those who are disobedient. And so that's the context here where Jacob's sons, it says, the text says, they answered deceitfully. And as we've gone through the story of Jacob, this word deceitfully probably comes to mind because Isaac uses this to describe the way in which Jacob got his birthright, that he acted in a deceptive manner to get the blessing. And here the sons of Jacob do seem to be looking like father, like son. But again, you have to come back to the situation they find themselves in. They're vastly outnumbered, aren't they? Their sister is being held hostage. And again, I, I don't know that the text says that this act of deception is a good thing, but it is interesting the way in which the narrator seems to show the sons acting in a better manner than their father. Really, the entire Jacob cycle is one in which morality is very difficult to untangle the, the motives and the morality of the individuals. They seem to act good on the one hand and act bad on the other, they make good decisions and bad decisions, all mixed up in, in these complex characters. It's almost as if they're real people when we come to it. And so the brothers propose, the, the sons of Jacob propose, there is one way that we can do this. It's not that we need any of these gifts, but rather you need to become like us. You need to become circumcised. And actually, up to this point, there, there is truth in what they're saying. If these people would become worshipers of Yahweh and take on the covenant sign of circumcision, then they could be brought in. It wouldn't be making one people. They would become Israelites. But as the narrator has already said, they have acted deceitfully. This is not, their plan is not to bring these people in, but rather to use this to your advantage, to their advantage. And they end their discussions. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And the context here seems to be that the, the sons of Jacob are indeed threatening them. They may be undermatched and of great odds, but here they are saying, we will take our daughter and we will do it by force if we have to. But these words pleased Hamor and Shechem. It's surprising in this story how quickly these adult men consent to circumcision. But here they, Shechem seems so desperate to have Dinah as his wife, and Hamor seems to be wanting to get a hold of Jacob's property that they both agree. And so you have this consent to all parties that it looks as if right here and now these parties will actually join together. Well, there's a second part that is needed, isn't there? Hamor and Shechem have to convince the people of Shechem 
that the men there need to be circumcised. So in the third scene, Hamor and Shechem return and they head to the city gate. And you'll remember from other places in scripture, the city gate acts as almost like this parliamentary place, this place in which the important men of the town, the elders of the town in which they gather to make decisions. And so here they, they come, they start to propose this plan to these other people in order that as they've gotten one side of the agreement made, that they would have the other side of the agreement made and that all parties would be happy. But throughout this section, it is full of irony. And you'll note in verse 21 that Hamor speaks to the men there, that these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for the land is large enough for them. We'll take their daughters as wives and we'll give our daughters. We will become one people. The only condition is that we are circumcised. They believe that the Israelites here are at peace with them, which they will suddenly find is the exact opposite of the case. And again, just like Hamor and Shechem, the men of the city agree. And it seems that Hamor's reasoning is that will not their livestock, in verse 23, their property and their beasts will be ours. Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And you'll note Hamor leaves out anything about Shechem and Dinah and this uh, marriage contract. And here presents to the people, the elders at the city gate, that there is all this property that Jacob has that will then be ours. And it's curious just to think through that. Just by becoming one people, how does he plan on gaining all of this property? It seems as if Hamor is also acting in a deceptive manner. Well, again, after this negotiation, verse 24, there's a, another broad consent, and all who were at the gate listened, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the city gate. So all the men of the city were now circumcised, and it seems at this point, Hamor and Shechem look at the deal that they have brokered, and Shechem believes that he will soon be able to be married. Hamor sees the great property that he will be able to amass, and everything seems to be good for them. But as we know, the, the story, we've already seen how the sons of Jacob have acted deceptively, so something is amiss. And in the, this last scene, 25 through 31, really we have the defiling of Shechem. So Simon and Levi, and these are the exact, these are the direct brothers of Dinah, so they're the direct descendants of Leah, so they all share the same mother. And so it makes sense that Simeon and Levi they take their swords, they come against the city while it felt secure. It seems as if even the guards of the city were circumcised as well, and there's no one who can fight back. And so they slaughter all of the males. They kill Hamor and his son Shechem. And then they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And it's there that we see that Dinah was being held captive, likely against her will, though the text doesn't say, but she's being held there. And so they do, as they had promised, they take her away. And it seems then the, the rest of the sons of Jacob come and see this city, uh, and they see all of the fighting men who have been slain and all of the riches there. They then take those because they have defiled their sister. They, they take this as recompense for the great shame and dishonor that the people have brought against them. And again, there's this, this irony here, right? Shechem is the one, the, the man who, who violated Dana, and then through his circumcision, he finds his death. 
Hamer sought to gain the wealth of Jacob, but in the end loses his life and all the goods of the city. And so then you end with this closing dialogue as Jacob is angry at Simeon and Levi, but his anger is such that he's concerned simply about his reputation among the inhabitants. His concern is simply that if we act like this, if we do this to every town we come across, right, the the towns, the cities, the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they will all mount up together and they will then destroy us. And it's interesting that Jacob has this fear, which certainly is a real fear. If word keeps getting around at what Jacob and his sons are doing, certainly people are going to notice and to take action. And actually in chapter 35, it speaks about the way in which the Lord put his fear upon the surrounding town so that Jacob could move freely and safely. So he is angry at his sons for the what sounds like not of real concern for, for Dinah, for the shame, for any of these things, but merely that now his life is made more difficult. And his sons return back. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And again, just the, the way in which the text ends, the, the narrator, that's the, the end of this episode. The narrator leaves those words hanging there in the air, and it seems as if he's, he's doing so as an indictment against Jacob. That the last words we have are his sons seemingly to rebuke him. His sons are are basically saying, right, she was violated. Shechem was going to pay you money. And look at the position that puts you in, Jacob. Right, the he there seems almost deliberately ambiguous. You, You would assume that they're talking about Shechem. But if Jacob accepts money from the Hivites... For his daughter, Dinah, what does that make Jacob? And so we have this complex and difficult passage. Jacob, who has been restored to his brother. Jacob, who has been worshiping the Lord. Jacob, who has set up altars to the Lord. Jacob, who has sworn to the Lord and fulfilled his oath. Jacob, who has trusted the Lord. Now he finds himself in a situation similar to that of Abraham and Isaac before him. And what's interesting to see in this situation is just as Abraham and Isaac did what were pretty much stupid things, the Lord protected the covenant community, protected the seed, and then also prospered them. And this situation is, is almost a, a direct uh, homage or allusion to those events. Simon, uh, sorry, Jacob does not come out of this story covered in glory. We see conflict still in his household, but yet throughout it all, even though God is not named in this chapter, yet he is the one behind it. He is the one protecting his covenant community. He's the one protecting the seed. And nonetheless, despite Jacob, he is prospering him. I find that to be a fascinating theme throughout the book of Genesis, that the Lord promises, fulfills, and prospers. And the repeated theme is that while, yes, these men trust and by faith all of these things happen, they are the most, well, not the most, but they are certainly unworthy of all of these blessings and these promises. And yet God protects and preserves. It almost gives me hope for myself, doesn't it? 
that despite my stupidity, despite the ways in which I wander far and wide from the Lord, despite the, the many sins that I have, yet the Lord protects me and prospers. That's not to say that we sin in order to put God to the test, but it is comforting to know that despite the patriarch's stupidity, the Lord is with them and guiding them and protecting them. So how does this text help us in any way? (laughs) I mean, certainly it's comforting to see that repeated theme of the Lord protecting his people, right? This same theme will be picked up when the Israelites are wandering. They're seemingly the most ungrateful people this world has to offer. As the Lord has shown his mighty works in saving them, they grumble. It's a good thing we don't act like that. But I think there are ways in which this text can help us see. I think first it it shows an extreme response to sin, doesn't it? Now, whether this was disproportional for Simeon and Levi to slaughter this entire town, nonetheless, the, the situation here is one in which sin was perpetrated and they respond. And actually in Numbers 31, this same problem has arisen that the Midianites are using intermarriage in a way to bring Israel to worship pagan gods. And it's here where one of the Levites, Phinehas, he takes up arms and Israel leads this campaign of uh, war against the Midianites. And actually much of the same language of of all the plunder that they took is, is reused in Numbers 31. In Numbers 31, it's painted as a good thing that they see the the sin, they see the idolatry, they see all of these things that are happening, and they respond with violence. And as we move into the New Testament, we may be tempted to think, well, maybe the response to sin is not violence. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says you should pull out your own eye. If it causes you to sin, your own eye should be pulled out. If your hand causes you to sin, it should be cut off. What is he talking about there? He's talking about a violent response to sin. Right? The Jacob cycle is full of tangled motives and deceptions, yet Hamor and Shechem, they really did uh, perpetrate this evil. And the threat of intermarriage is a very real one that Israel struggles with and suffers with. Right, the, the text almost seems to, to show the allure of the world as Dinah wanders unprotected in the city. And as Hamor offers up all of these gifts if they would just simply intermarry and become one people. That there will be all of the security and prosperity if only you will join us right, and our evil ways. I mean, isn't Hamor here simply condoning his son's actions? His son can just go and grab any woman that he wants. And Hamor just goes and tries to broker a deal and bring in all of this economic advantage from it. And we see, really, the world wants to offer us the same deal, doesn't it? The world holds out security and prosperity on the condition, right, that you join it in its evil ways. This is a problem that Israel would fight with till really the, the time in which they return from exile. 
It would take almost all of Israel's history and the, the greatest, most uh, important, devastating event in their life, it would take that to finally show and show forth the effects of sin and the effects of, inter, uh, of intermarriage in their life. Well, lastly, I think it shows the extreme response to sin. It shows the problems of this world. But I think most importantly, this text shows, it shows Jesus' family. I find that to be just fascinating to think that if we just deal with the genealogy, we, just, we go, yes, these are people in Jesus's life. Yes, Jesus was a, was a human being, really descended from real people. But suddenly when you pull back and go, well, he's actually from the tribe of Judah. And then you can remember Judah and Tamar. Yes, he's actually the son of Jacob. Well, how did Jacob behave and act? How did Isaac behave and act? How did Abraham behave and act? How did David behave and act? Right? Jesus comes not to just humanity in general, though he does do that, but he comes as a son of David. He comes as one of the Israelites. And in his baptism, he identifies with them. Jesus is born of the line of David. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses. And yet it was Moses who was banned from the promised land and David who caused the untold death of a multitude of the Israelites. And yet it is through Jesus, through his humiliation, through his incarnation that he comes to save us and redeem us, but then adopt us. As we read in Galatians 3, he then brings us into the family of Abraham. That Jesus was actually born a Jew as the fulfillment of all of the Jewish Old Testament to bring this great blessing of Abraham. He then takes Gentiles who, as you read the scriptures, are generally even more unworthy than the Israelites. When we look at the Israelites, we can look at them and go, I can't believe they've made such a mess. And then we realize these are God's people and that the people outside of God's people are even worse, as you see in the case of Hamor and Shechem. And yet it was through Jesus, the son of David, son of Abraham, who through his death and through his resurrection, through the muck and mess of life, brings out something beautiful. He brings restoration. He brings hope. He brings us into an eternal family where he is washing and cleansing us, where he is at work in us. And where he's making us ready, right, for that great and glorious day of his return. And as we'll celebrate in the Lord's Supper, his, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us to inaugurate a new covenant. This is what Christ has done for you, yet he knows your sinful heart, your attitudes, your desires, your life. I mean, think about it. If you wrote your biography, what parts wouldn't you include? What would you skip over? Jacob didn't get that chance, did he? <laughs> but it shows forth a God who loves him despite what he does. And we come to that same God, the one who loves us despite knowing us more than we know ourselves. So brothers and sisters, let us take hope tonight. And as we come to the table, remember that it is Jesus who bids us come, take, and eat. Enjoy this communion and fellowship with me and with one another. So let us pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more.